Let's get started this morning. Thank you for waking up early and getting here. You've been doing this since, uh, when, when did we start? In September sometime? I don't remember when. So good job staying committed and being faithful all year. Appreciate that. We'll encourage you to constantly press on with your Bible reading. Don't give up. Um, and that reads through the Bible in a year. Um, just keep pressing on. And again, the real, the real key is when you, when you fall off and um, you miss a few days, it's very easy to talk yourself right out of even just getting back in. Because you can say, well, what's the point? I'm not going to have made it through the whole Bible and blah, blah, blah. And, and the next thing you know, you, you, you can be out of it. But the point is just pick right back up with whatever day you're on. Um, you know, if, you're a, if, you, if you missed one day, yeah, try to pick up, you know, that day the next time you read if you can. But um, when you're reading through the Bible in a year, you're reading about four chapters a day or so. And, you know, th- that adds up as you miss. So don't, don't get discouraged. Just start right in what, with whatever day it is and keep reading. And what you're trying to do is, is your, the main goal is not merely to have just read the Bible in from 2009 to 2010. Yeah, you want to do that, but the main goal is you're, you're really establishing a discipline for life. And you'll see this morning as we talk <coughs> about the, the church's vision and purpose that uh, why reading your whole Bible is really important. Um, you know, we tend to be those uh, kinds of Christians. The Christians that live today are the, the types that tend to read their five favorite books of the New Testament, maybe Psalms, maybe Proverbs. And we really miss out on so much more that God has given to us. So keep hanging in there and, and recognize that you know, you're, you're developing a, a spiritual discipline for life. Um, and you want to be able to feed your, your heart well on the God that is revealed in both the Old and the New Testament. So um, we, we took the, as I said in my email that I sent out to you guys, <clears throat> we're taking the, the one... The, the discipline that I would have covered this morning on the, heart, or on the home with um, <coughs> loving your wives, husbands loving your wives, um, and then the next one in March, which is the vision and the purpose, we took those two and we're just switching them. Um, Tom is going to cover the next one on husbands loving your wives. It's basically just going to be a, a, um, an exhortation to you as men, even if you don't have a wife, how you need to really be caring for and becoming the kind of man who will be able to care for a wife well. And uh, Tom's going to lead us in that. So um, I'm excited to be able to, for us this morning to be able to look at our church's vision and purpose. Um, you see it as you walk in upon the big banners. You see it on our bulletin about the glory of God, the cross of Christ, <coughs> and, and the transformation of life by the Spirit. Draw in, build up, send out. Um, we really want you just to be able to figure out more and, and understand that better this morning. Um, also, this next week, Tuesday or Wednesday, I think we're going to be, um, many of us will be taking off for the Shepherds Conference, so if you have any questions about that, um, you can ask guys. I think everything's all taken care of in terms of our transportation and all that kind of thing, but if you have any questions and you're going you want to ask, feel free to do that this morning too, okay? Um, Oh, and this morning, a huge thanks to Beth Bauer, um, Dave's wife. Dave's not even here because he had a car show that was lined up that he needed to be at. And um, so his wife decided anyway that she would supply for all of you 
And, and Denny, how's your wife feeling? We got a little hope. A little bit of hope? Has it been about her back? Is that what's going on? Yeah. Because uh, Barb was going to help out and was just incapacitated. And Beth said, no sweat, I got it covered. And so one woman fed all of you today. Um, and, and her husband wasn't even able to come. But Jerry, the son-in-law, was able to get it here. So we praise God for Jerry. <laughs> Listen to that small round of applause. Were you, guys, were you guys at the Phoenix Open? Because that was like a golf clap. That was good. <laughs> and by the way, I mean, look, and, and I know one of us works uh, and, and deals in this whole area, but when you put waste management on a golf tournament, <laughs> I know, Lewis. I, look, it's not about you. <laughs> Every time I hear that, I just go, I'm embarrassed. I'm just, <laughs> anyway. It doesn't seem like a winner, does it? It doesn't. And now we have really gone from really high and important things down to bad things, <laughs> the trashy things. Um, hey, let's take a look at your uh, quote this morning. I came across this this last week as I was uh, doing some extra preparation for the message on Sunday. I was reading a book by Alexander Strauch, just a little one. I'm really grateful for him. He has written some really key, important books for the church. Um, his book on biblical eldership is probably the best book that is out there on understanding what biblical eldering and shepherding is. And it was foundational for the elders of this church to read that uh, about six years ago. And we had all read it before even that, but when we kind of all came together, it really helped shape us and form us um, in, in regards to our thinking about eldering. Um, he's got that book. He's got a book on deacons um, as well that was very helpful for us as we were shaping what we were thinking about deacons. We didn't come to the same conclusion as he did, but he was really able to crystallize what the issues were around what deacons are biblically and, and the way churches look at deacons and things like that. And so he, he's been huge on that. He, he wrote, he's written several books on love, on biblical love, and that's kind of his topic that he, he's really focusing on. Um, agape leadership is the one, and that, who's that, what's that guy's name? R.C. Chapman? R.C. Chapman, it, you know, it's all about his life. Yeah. How do you spell his last name? S. Alexander Strauch? Yeah. I think it's right there at the bottom of your oh, quote. No, yeah, S-T-R-A-U-C-H. Anything that he writes is worth getting. Um, he wrote a little book called Love or Die, and it's really on um, what Christ said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. Um, you know, you've been sound doctrinally. You've been right after things going well. You you. You, you can't tolerate heresy, but one thing I have against you, Jesus said, and that is you left your first love. And um, so he's writing about that. And the reason I was interested in that is because we're talking about the church in Ephesus, obviously in Ephesians 4, but Sunday we're going to go to 1 Timothy 1 and look and see what happened to that same church that had that amazing doctrine given to it in a matter of two years, probably from the time that they got the letter of Ephesians, and Paul gets out of prison and he comes and finds the church in complete disarray. Um, and so I was just kind of just trying to read broadly on what was happening to the church at Ephesus, and I came across this, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. He says, ironically, the church was not deceived by false teachers from without, in Revelation 2, 2, but was deceived by the failure of love within. The Ephesians successfully confronted one grave danger, false teaching, 
but had succumbed to, one, uh, to another equally dead danger, lack of love. And this is a lesson to all churches. Sound doctrine and fervent love both must be maintained and balanced. And um, we really, that's a good word for us to hear um, who love doctrine and who love the Bible um, and who love each other. We need to hang on to those loves, right? All right. Let's pray and then we'll jump in and take a look at God's word this morning, okay? You pray with me. Father, we want to um, joyfully confess this morning that the only reason that we love is because of you. Um, there was nothing in our flesh, there was nothing in these bodies, there was nothing in our minds, our desires that made us want to give of ourselves sacrificially to you or to others, Lord. We were self-grasping people who wanted everybody else to give of themselves for our purposes. And the only reason we did good or maybe sacrificed time <coughs> for others prior to you in our life was because we thought we'd get something from it. And so we can hardly call that love. It's a worldly love. It's, it's not a godly love. It's not heavenly love. It's not true biblical love. And then you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You showed us what love is because you are love and you sent your son. He didn't grasp for himself his equality with you, but he took on the form of a, a bondservant. And he gave himself up at the cross. And he purchased for us a new heart, and in that new heart is love. True biblical love is in that new heart that you give, and we find that there is a new desire to love you, to truly give of ourselves and sacrifice ourselves out for you in worship. And there's love for our neighbor. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to never think that that love is um, optional, Father, we pray that we would hold on to love for one another as much as we want to hold on to doctrine and your Bible. And we thank you for um, the unfortunate example of the church in Ephesus, a church of so much privilege. And yet the privilege didn't make any guarantees. Um, so, Father, we, we want to avoid that example. We want to hold on to love and we believe that the only way that we'll do that is if you come and, and you are gracious to us and that we humble ourselves before you regularly and seek your face. And so even this morning, God, we pray that our time together would be a, a pursuit of, of two things equally. One would be right doctrine and your word, but also that this would be an opportunity for us to love one another and to express our love for you as we interact with your word. God, thank you for these men and thank you for their commitment and their sacrifice they make to be here. Thank you for Beth and her servant's heart to feed us. And Lord, thank you also for Barb and her desire to do as well. We pray, Lord, that you would help restore her to um, good health, Lord, so that she can serve her family well. Thank you for 
her servant's heart as well. And be with us this morning and um, strengthen us as a church by strengthening these men. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Let's jump right into a biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. That's the way that we basically sum up what we want to be about as a church. We have a biblical vision of God that leads us to something very specific, and that is our gospel purpose in Christ. And it would be good for us to start off uh, this morning talking about what we mean and what we do not mean by vision. It's a very uh, confusing um, term to use. It can be. So let's talk about what we do not mean by vision, okay? We do not mean um, subjective, unverifiable, dreamlike things, okay? We do not mean that um, because they are subjective and unverifiable. <laughs> um, who knows what it is? Um, my daughter, yesterday morning, as I woke her up, she said, Daddy, I was having a dream that you were waking me up. And uh, I thought maybe I have a prophetess in my house or something. I don't know. Um, you can't verify what's going on inside your mind and your heart. And so we're not talking about that kind of a vision. We are also not talking about a Daniel-like vision or a Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist dad, Zechariah, in chapter 1 of Luke. We're not talking about that kind of vision either. Those are not subjective visions. Because why? <coughs> because they are inspired by God and inscripturated by God. Inspiration took those and made them verifiable, made them objective, not subjective. And we're still not even talking about those kinds of visions because we're not having those kinds of visions. Okay, so we're not talking about the dreamlike things that we think we might have. We're not even talking about what Daniel had. We're not even talking about what um, Zechariah had. Um, we're just not talking about vision in that way. So then what do we mean by a biblical vision. Um, and this is why we stick the word biblical on the front of vision. And there's two things here that I want you to get um, as we uh, to understand what we mean by biblical vision. Number one, we want to see as the Bible sees. When you see that word vision, just think of the word see. Okay? We want to see as the Bible sees. Okay? We want to have a biblical lens. And we want all of the Bible to be our sight, to be our guide, to be our vision. We want all of the Bible, not one testament against another. Okay? We want from Genesis to Revelation, we want it all to be our vision, what's in our sights. Okay? <clears throat> so our sights are on the Bible. But we also want to see the world through the way the Bible sees. We, so we want to put our sights on this, but then it's, it's, it's also like glasses that you put on through which you look and you read the world. You see the world. So that's what we mean. We want to have a biblical worldview. We want to have a biblical vision. Okay? Secondly, um, in, in that, so we want to see as the Bible sees. So that part really puts the emphasis on the word vision. Here's what we mean by vision. Here's why it's important for us to put biblical or put the word Bible with vision. Secondly, we want the Bible 
to be the controlling line of authority. That's very important, guys. We want the Bible to be the control, controlling line of authority over everything. Now, now, let me give you why that's important. We want the Bible to be the controlling line of authority over even our theology. Okay? What's, what's the big deal here? It's a biblical <coughs> vision for the church. It's not a theological vision for the church. And we're not trying to say that we don't care about theology. That's not the point. But, but listen carefully. Think on this. I don't want to drive a wedge too far between the Bible and theology, but which comes from what? Which one comes from the other? Theology comes from the Bible. So every time, and look, everybody, look, you want to develop theology as you come to the Word of God. And by the way, you can't help but develop theology when you come from the Bible. Everybody has a system that they have formed based on what they have read. Now, how accurate that system is is what we get to spend the rest of our lives shaping and sharpening, right? Um, and obviously you have different theological camps that have formed this system as opposed to this system. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that the thing that has the controlling line of authority in our lives is not our system, but the Bible. Texts, specific texts in the Bible need to be able to say what they say and mean what they mean on their own. They need to speak on their own behalf first. So every time you come to the Bible, you come with this big cloud of systematic theology that, of whatever you've put together in your mind, whatever you've read, whatever you've been shaped by, and then you come and you open the Bible. Which one has to give way to the other? If there's a point of division. And this is what you get faced with every day when you read your Bible. Because you come to your Bible with all that you've developed in your mind about what you believe about God to be as a character, his character, his nature, his attributes. You, you look at, you come to the Bible with what you believe salvation to be from what you read from the Bible. You come to the Bible with what you believe about what's going to happen in the future. You come to the Bible believing about what you saw happen in the past in, in, in the Bible. And you bring all of it. And when you come there, there, you must take all of that theology and you must push it down under the text you're reading and say, this has a controlling line of authority. And this, I'm going to read it again. I may have read it a hundred times. And I may think that I developed the right theology from that text, but you know what I'm going to do again? Because every time the Bible's open, this has the controlling line of authority, and I resubmit again my theology to the text. And I let come back up through it what comes up through it. It might be the same thing I brought to it. And it might do that a hundred times. There might be one time you come and you read the text and you're going, oh my goodness, I see something that this text says that didn't shape my theology and it must shape it again. Do you understand? What has the controlling line of authority? The Bible. Texts have the controlling line of authority. Not theology. Okay? Come to the Word of God and let the Word of God speak for itself in its text, in its context, where it's at. Okay? Because theology is derived from text. And listen, your theology does shape how you're going to read your Bible. It does. 
Which is all the more reason, guys, that when you come to the Bible, let the Bible polish the glass of your theology so that when you look at it and it's helping to shape you, let the Bible, again, speak louder, more clearly, and be willing to adjust your theology. This is why I don't like to be put in any camp theologically. I understand where I shake, where I shake out. I shake out more in a kind of camp that looks like this than I do a camp that looks like this over here. But the reason why I want to fall out wherever it is I fall out is because I want each text to be able to say what the text says. And if this preconceived camp that the evangelical church has set for itself over the last couple hundred years has a piece of it that's just funny, because I read a text and that just doesn't seem to fit with it, then I don't want that system, that part of it. I want my Bible to be able to say what my Bible says. Okay? So you have to be really careful about that. Theology is very important. I don't want you to hear me say that theology is not important. Do you understand what I'm saying? Theology is very important. But let your Bible be the controlling line of authority. Okay? So then, what do we mean about a biblical vision of God? So we've kind of analyzed the words. We, we, here's what we mean by vision, and here's what we don't mean by vision. Here's why the word biblical is very important. Now let's talk about the word God. Why is, the, why is it important to talk about a biblical vision of God? Well, is if you come to your Bible and you start to read through your Bible, and if what you see in your Bible is creation at the beginning, and then what you see is covenants being made, and then if what you see as you read your Bible is Israel, and then if what you read is and see is Mosaic Law, and then what you see as you read a little bit further is the church, and then if what you see is the end, if you see all of that, and that is all you see when you come to the Bible, you miss something. In fact, you miss the most important thing. Because when you come to the Bible, you need to see the God of creation. And when you come to the Bible, you need to see the God of the covenants. And you need to see the God of Israel. And you need to see the God of Mosaic Law. And you need to see the God of the church. And you need to see the God of the end. You see, what if you get all those things, but you didn't pay attention to God? And don't fall into the trap thinking, well, if I see those things, I automatically see God. No, you don't. Men have done this forever. Have lots of thinking about what the church is, and they have no clue about the God of the church. And their view of the church proves it. So don't assume that just because you have your Bible open, I'm automatically getting God. No, you have to be disciplined to think, I want to see the God of creation. I want to see the creator. I want to see the one who makes the covenants. I want to see the one who called Israel out. I want to see the law that he, I want to see the one who, the lawgiver who gave the law, etc. Does that make sense? Scripture is revelation of a person, right? This is discipline one. We come to the word of God to get the God of the word. So it's a biblical vision of God we want to have. So how would we summarize all of this? Um, a biblical vision of God is our attempt to try to summarize what scripture reveals about God. That's it. Now how on earth do you do that? For a church, as a church, as a person. How do you summarize what God is like? Well, we tried to do it in a 
a very simple way, and that's just by looking at the members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's really what the biblical vision is about. It's about the glory of God, and by that we mean the Father. It's about the cross of Christ, what the second member of the Godhead did when he sacrificed himself, and the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're setting our sights on. Now, let's talk about the glory of God. And primarily, I, I want you to notice, too, that um, these first three, the glory of God, the cross of Christ, and transformation of life by the Spirit, are those commands or are those, are those propositions? Statements. The glory of God, how do you do that? The cross of Christ, how do you do that? Transformation of life by the Spirit. We can talk a little bit more about that, but, but what we're talking about is what God did. What God did. It's God-centered. It's about what, who God is and what he has accomplished, what he is known by. The first thing that we want to talk about is the glory of God, and by this we mean primarily the Father. And we're not trying to say when we talk about the glory of God the Father, we're not trying to say well, the Son doesn't have glory and neither does the Holy Spirit. We're just putting the emphasis on the glory of God. I encourage you sometimes, um, this can help you with your Bible reading through the Bible in a year, and you can turn to Exodus 33 as I'm explaining this to you. As you read through the Bible, and I encourage you to do this for the rest of your life, whether you use the same plan always year after year, or whether you pick and choose different plans that'll take you through the whole Bible, but each year, take one or two themes that you want to trace through the Bible. And I would suggest one of the first ones you should take is the theme of glory. Look for the word glory in the English. You'll miss it sometimes because in the Hebrew they'll, they'll translate it heavy uh, because that's the idea, weighty. And so you'll miss many of them, but that's okay. The, just look for the word glory um, and just trace it through. And just circle it or write off in your margin glory so that it stands out to you or journal it and write what you see glory to be, um, you, will, you will really um, find that to be a very rich and beneficial, fruitful study. Um, what does glory mean? Let's define that before we look at Exodus 33. Glory is God's weightiness. It's God's worth. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of words that will just help you to understand what glory is. <clears throat> it's his impressiveness. It's his impressiveness that is expressed through brilliant radiance, oftentimes light or fire or something like that is, is, is put in those texts of his glory. Uh, you see this especially with Moses, don't you? And Israel. You had fire by night and the cloud by day. Um, the burning bush. There seems to be a brilliant radiance. Uh, there's a sense in which God's glory is that which God uses to reveal himself to man. He, God says, no man can see me and what? Live. There's no way you could see God as he truly is and survive it. Because the way that you are right now is not, does not have the capacity to handle what he is. 
And so how does he then reveal to himself to us? Well, in the Old Testament, the way that he did that was by revealing his glory. What was impressive about him? What was radiant about him? And, and so man could handle that and did handle that. Moses stood in the presence of the glory of God. He could handle that. He couldn't see all of God, what God was, but he could see the, what was radiant about him. He has, so he has communicated himself in and through his glory. So when you think of glory, you need to think of weightiness, impressiveness, impressiveness, brilliance, radiance, that kind of thing. You also need to think of communication. It's what God uses to communicate himself, his glory. Any man that stepped into the presence of the glory of God in, on any of the pages of scripture, everything stopped. He knew he was a dead man, right? He knew that he, life needed to be put on pause for a moment because I am in the presence of one who is so great and impressive and weighty. All right, let's take a look at Exodus 33. Actually, back up to chapter 32, verse 35. Do you remember what happened in chapter 32? The golden calf. Moses has been up on the mountain, and he comes down and he says, and Joshua's coming down with him, and Joshua says something like, uh, this is the sound of war in the camp. And they get closer to that. That's not the sound of war, but that's the sound of, that's a party going on. What is that? And they come down to find out that something miraculous happened. People came and brought their golden earrings and golden jewelry, and, and Aaron just put it in the fire, and just out came a calf. I just, that's what he says. He, that's what he said. He's, I don't know how it happened, Moses. It just came out. And God says, it says in chapter 32, verse 35, Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf, which Aaron had made. Um, look at verse 1 of chapter 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord said this, Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I'll give it. I'll send an angel before you. And I'll drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. Because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. God says, I'm done being in the middle of you. I'm not going. And when the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning. And none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore, take off your party garments, so that I may know what I shall do with you. Oh my goodness. Wow. God says, I'm done. Not going to, no more. This is over. Now, drop down to verse 12. <coughs> Then Moses has a chance to talk to God. And he says, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yeah, you, yeah, you said an angel, but I, that, I don't know what you, specifically what you're talking about. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, Moses, and you have also found favor in my sight. 
Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, so that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. It's not my people. This is your people. Moses is saying, look, I feel a great sense of responsibility here as the leader. Now, if you're not coming, i got to know who you are, and I need to know your ways so that I know how to lead these people. And by the way, they're not even my people. They're your people, God. Verse 14. And God said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, don't lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Listen, this is the point. Israel is no different than any other nation. Israel is no different than any other nation. They're as godless, as pagan as all the rest of them are. What is the one defining difference between Israel and everybody else? God! And if you don't go with us, we're nobody! There's going to be nothing impressive about what we are or what we're called to do. You must go with us. Moses understood what was really at stake. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And then Moses isn't done yet. Moses almost kind of interrupts him again and says, I pray you show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So what's he going to do? He's going to show him his goodness. And he's going to preach a sermon as he goes by. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. He's going to show him his sovereignty. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And then the Lord said, behold, I love this. There is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God's way of helping Moses see. You can't fully absorb who I am, but I'm going to let you see my weightiness and my glory and, and my backside, so to speak, as I'm going past you. That is probably the greatest Old Testament text on the glory of God. Um, that is defining in, in regards to understanding that God reveals himself through his glory. He's an impressive God. Let's look at some New Testament passages. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh. We know that's Jesus, right? And dwelt among us, literally tabernacled. Choice word from a Jew. Remember how God tabernacled among Israel in the wilderness? Leviticus, end of Exodus, beginning of Leviticus. It's a great, I love the picture. God on a mountain, 
at Sinai in the wilderness, Israel down below, and what he is doing on that mountain and to that mountain is so terrifying to Israel that they're like, we, we can't get near. Moses, you go listen to him and you tell us. And everything he says, we'll do it. And God says, this, this is one of the wisest moments for this nation. And God reveals to Moses up on the mountain, you know what, I'm actually going to come and live. I'm going to live right in your midst. I'm going to tabernacle among you. I'm going to be in a tent. Mountain is being dwarfed by this awesome presence of God. And he says, I'm going I'm to live in a tent in your midst. And so then Moses constructs this tent and kind of scoots the Israelites out and about and around and they're organized around it. And then glory by fire and glory by a cloud in the middle of that tent, in the middle of that nation, near to those people. And to get to that God, he invites them to come. Come to me. Um, You need to bring a substitute. There's going to be blood everywhere. My glory and blood of an innocent Now, why did God do that? Because in his mind, he knew where he was going, wasn't he? That someday, as we see it as we read through the Bible, you get to the New Testament, it says this, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory. The glory of God in the the second member of the Godhead as as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That's powerful. Go to John chapter 12, verse 37. So what does John do? He links the second member of the Godhead back to Sinai, back to the the tabernacle and the temple. Now watch what he does. John chapter 12, verse 37. But though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of not Moses, but now the prophets, Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And most likely what is being referred to there is when uh, Isaiah saw his glory and expressed his glory as holy, holy, holy. So here is the second member of the Godhead taking the glory of God and revealing it in himself, the glory that was tied to the tabernacle, the glory that was tied to the vision that Isaiah had. Luke chapter 9. Turn there. (coughs) I love this. And Jesus let a few privileged disciples see that, didn't he? Luke 9, verse 28. If you really want to see and understand what is at the heart of the kingdom of God, you need to understand that it's Jesus in all of his radiant glory. I don't know if you've... I think for years I have felt like verse 27... And and all of the gospel accounts are this way that include this, Matthew and Mark. Um, um, Verse 27, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then you go to the next verse, and it's very clear in all the passages that some eight days later after these things, he took along Peter, James, and John's and 
John and James, and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was there, uh, the appearance of his face became different. It's very clear in all of these passages that what the writer means is that when he wants to show him the kingdom of God, he shows him the radiant glory of Jesus Christ. When I've read that, I've been kind of like, that's not what I was thinking I needed to see. I wanted to see the kingdom, you know. And I don't know what that means, but I wasn't thinking of that. Um, maybe you're not as lowland thinking as I am, but this is impressive. Because the kingdom is everything about Christ and his radiant glory. While he was praying, verse 29, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. Here's the idea of glory. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, or splendor, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the interesting word in the Greek for the word departure is actually, the, could be translated, speaking of his exodus. Isn't that interesting? He's going to have an exodus. He's going to lead the powerful redemption and deliverance out. Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, here's Peter wanting to prolong this. They're starting to leave. Whatever it is they were doing with Jesus, Moses and Elijah are now starting to, to leave. And Peter wants to keep it. doesn't want it to go away. Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. I mean, he really didn't get it because what he's doing is he's putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Here's Moses and Elijah standing together as representatives of the law and the prophets. Old Testament scripture. And here's Jesus standing with them and Peter's thinking the way that only he can think, and that is, there are three really cool people here right now. <laughs> I want this to keep going. But he didn't realize what he was saying. Verse 34, while he was saying this, God was like, oh, Peter, you, here comes the cloud. It formed, and it began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. You listen to him. God is saying, you know what God did here? God's the one who diminished Moses here. God is the one who diminished Elijah. Because he needed to show that his son was the one that he was pleased with. My son is the one who is the key one. My son is the great one. My son is the one that these two guys wrote about and revealed. Well, Elijah never really wrote, but he stands as a, as a, a representative of the prophets. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, reported to no one any of these things until later, we know. That's great. I love that. There's the glory of God. Now, the other passages that are there, Matthew 16, uh, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Revelation, they point more towards the future glory of the Son when He comes back. So what I tried to do is give you some passages in which there's lots of glory now while Jesus is alive, coming through Him. But there is a glory when He comes, when He is sent by the Father, when He comes with the glory and with all of His angels and He comes back to judge 
Um, there's glory that way too. So I'll let you read that. Now, practice. Uh, yes. Just a quick observation on the transfiguration passage. Yes. Um, the only command in there is when God says to uh, Peter and John and James, listen to him. Yep. And it's interesting because the Israelites were commanded to listen to Moses. That's and right. Elijah. That's and right. There were very bad things that would happen to them if they didn't do that. That's right. God says, listen to him, my son. Who's greater than the law? Who's greater than the prophets? The one that the law and the prophets revealed. Jesus. Absolutely. Great observation. Practically speaking, what does this, I mean, what does this mean for you? I mean, great. This is stunning thoughts about the glory of God and things that the word of God reveals about the glory of God. Here's what I think is, is, has to impact you and me this morning. Guys, you need to position yourself daily to see the glory of God in the word of God. What we just looked at and, and those kind of, I mean, every morning when you have your Bible open, every day, every night, whenever it is you have your Bible open, you need to position yourself to drink the glory of God in. Now, if you do that, as you open your Bible and you say, God, show me your impressiveness, show me your radiance, I, I want to be like, I want to be a modern day Moses that says, show me your glory. Um, if you do that, how, let me see if I can put, how do I put this? The man who does that, let's, let's make contrast. The man who does that, who says, God, when I have your word open, I want to see your glory. That man, and then there's another man next to him who's not thinking about that. Doesn't appear to be as good. He might have his Bible open a lot, but he's just not drawn to that. Maybe he's drawn more to, God, just tell me what to do in this difficult situation I'm in. Now, when it comes time for both of them to <coughs> glorify God, which one is better positioned to praise God and glorify God? The one who has drank in his glory or the one who maybe hasn't? You see, the impact is huge if you've positioned yourself to see the glory of God. In fact, I would say we all understand I think probably better what it means to glorify God. That means just to worship Him, to honor Him, to exalt Him. And we understand that because it's something I do. Before you are really well equipped to glorify God, you better drink in His glory first. Then your glorifying of God is going to be better informed. You're going to have greater motivation to glorify Him, will you not? Then if you don't, I think it's a huge, huge implication. The men who are most equipped and effective for God throughout redemptive history were those who hungered to see the glory of God. Guys, you need to be that kind of man. You want to be helpful to your wife? You want to be helpful to your kids? You want to be helpful to your, your parents? You want to be helpful to your small group? Drink in the glory of God in the scriptures. Be that kind of man. All right, let's talk about the cross of Christ. These will go a little quicker than that first one. The cross of Christ. The glory of God is tied inseparably, guys, in Scripture to substitutionary sacrifice. Let's go back to the Mosaic Law in the temple, in the tabernacle. Think about that again. Everywhere, all over those passages, in those pages of Scripture, is the glory of God, is the radiant impressiveness of God. 
Listen to the way Exodus ends. Just listen. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He couldn't even get in because whatever was so radiant about God and impressive about him was so full in there, he couldn't even get in. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. If the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses, and he spoke to him from the tent, and he said, When any man of you brings an offering, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. Herd, uh, cattle, bull, um, oxen, sheep, goats, pigeons, doves blood. My glory is in this place, and there needs to be blood. Not, not, not yours, a substitute's blood. Your blood will do me no good. And your blood will do you no good. You need a substitute's blood. You see, there has been, ever since the very beginning pages of Scripture, an inseparable tie between the glory of God, what is radiant and what is impressive about Him, and a substitute's blood. It's just the way it's been. tent full of the glory of God and a tent with blood everywhere. You know what the revelation is? I think Smed's going to preach this um, a week from Sunday. The, the climax is, is in heaven, God preserving that. There's, there's a lion. And when I looked at him, I saw a lamb. Wait a minute, it's a lion. Yeah, but when I looked... I saw a lamb standing as if what? Slain. What is God preserving in heaven for all time in his son? The, the sacrifice of the substitute. Everything in the glory of God in heaven and everything is going to focus on that one. This is the way it is. It came to a climax in scripture in the death of Christ. So that's how Christ's death is related to God's glory. They're inseparable, guys. Um, now let's talk about the cross of Christ, what we're not saying. It's important to do this because we've been accused of this um, by some. We've been accused of having a Christless cross, that we're just about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, cross-centered, cross, the cross. And we talk about the cross, and we talk about the cross, and I, we've heard it from some that, well, you, you, there's more talk about the cross than there is Christ. And you know what? I think that is a good thing for us to hear. I don't think it's completely true. I don't think it's a, it, it, it's a good warning for us to listen to. Um, I don't think we have a Christless cross. But what, what difference does it make if you have the cross but you don't have Christ? I mean, there's nothing in that. There's nothing in that. So first, we're, we're not talking about a Christless cross, okay? We're talking about the cross of Christ. And, and by em putting emphasis on the cross, we're not diminishing the resurrection. Okay, um, look, you can only, you can have a vision statement that's as, as, as big as this book if you want. <laughs> Don't leave anything out. But, you know, when, you, when you're trying to construct a, a, a statue out of marble, you have to throw away good marble. You know, you can't use it all. And so we're not trying to diminish the resurrection of what it is. We're just putting the emphasis on the glory tied to blood. 
okay? And it substitutes blood. So the cross makes no sense without the right one dying on it. And look, it look this, let's face it. The resurrection only matters because it was the right one who died on the cross, right? It's not the resurrection of any man. It's not just the concept of resurrection. It is the resurrected one who was the one on the cross who died, who is Christ. Okay? Your Old Testament type in this is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. I encourage you to go back. I read that again yesterday, and I was the first thing I noticed after I read it, when I was reading it through on the second time, is the word atonement. And so I counted, at least in my translation, I think the word atonement or atoning occurs 15 times in that chapter in Leviticus, Leviticus 16. But that's the Day of Atonement. You have um, the bull that was sacrificed, and then you have the goat that was sacrificed, and then you had the scapegoat, which was the one that they laid hands on and they prayed over that goat, all of the sins of Israel on that goat. And then a man was standing ready and he took that goat, and that goat ran out into the wilderness, presumably to be abandoned and to die. Because on it, it had all of the sins. And so the guilt of Israel on that, and the guilt taken away? The guilt taken away. That's called expiation. Guilt removed. Um, so there's your Old Testament type. New Testament teaching. Why are we doing Old Testament and New Testament? Because this is what kind of vision of God? Biblical. See, we don't want to leave out the Old Testament at all. You miss something really important when you do that. Um, New Testament teaching. Go to Hebrews 9. Let's take a look at that. <clears throat> Hebrews 9. And why is this important for you guys, again, just as you're turning there? Um, look, be a man who shepherds your own heart. Be a man who shepherds your home well, your household relationships. Be a man who steps into the life of ministry uh, of people and in the church and outside the church. Aim for being a qualified man of God, um, according to deacon and elder qualifications. Aim for all of that. Um, but you know what? You go to this church. And yes, you could be that kind of man, and you should be that kind of man no matter what church you go to. But you take all of that and you throw it at what this is, what we're trying to express and be a part of it at this church. And if a church expresses it a little bit differently in another way at their church, you go there someday, great. Throw yourself as a man who shepherds his heart, his household, and, and ministers of people of the gospel, and you're a qualified man. Throw everything of yourself at that church. But for while you're at this church, let's throw it at, at these things here, the cross of Christ. Hebrews 9, verse 22. And according to the law, one almost... One may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Drop down to verse 24. Uh, let's just read verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heavens, in the heavens, to be cleansed with these. And he's talking about the earthly forms in the law. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have no need, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested, he has been revealed to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. By the shedding of his own blood. Whenever you see the word sacrifice, you just got to think blood. So he put away sin. Here's what I'd like you to write down somewhere by the New Testament teaching. Three key words that you need to know. It's a theological phrase. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Penal, P-E-N-A-L, substitutionary, help each other out on that one. Atonement. Guys, those three words, without you don't have to say them to people, okay? If you don't, you know, because we live in a day where people are not going to understand what you mean when you talk about that. But you need to be able to, as you're sharing the gospel, because this is the heart of the gospel, you need to be able to talk about a penalty that has to be paid in order for God's righteousness to be withheld, upheld, okay? A penalty. You have to talk about that you can't pay the penalty. There needs to be a substitute in your place to do that. And um, when he sacrifices that innocent one who who's, stands in the place of the sinner, when that one's blood is shed, atonement is made. And the easy way that we try to talk about atonement with our kids is, is by just using what's already in the word. That can make you at one with God. It can make you at one with God. Now the way that that happens, that atonement happens, is through two key words. I mentioned one of them. Expiation and propitiation. This is your little theology lesson for the, for the day. Expiation means the removal of guilt and sin. It's the taking it away. What's propitiation? That's right. Think of the word satisfaction. The, the wrath of God is satisfied. And it's only satisfied one way. It's not by you doing good things to try to get God's attention. Okay? It's by the penalty that was paid by the substitute. Therefore, we were propitiate our, our we had propitiation, we had expiation, and we are made at one with God. Okay, that's the heart of the gospel. Um, that's what's all bound up in talking about the cross of Christ. Practically speaking, um, what does this mean? Uh, you, for the sake of time, 1 Corinthians 2, you remember this? Paul says, um, I did not come to you with persuasive words. I wasn't trying to be really smart about how I'm clever, how to put words together. But I came to you and I, I knew only one thing. Christ had been crucified. You guys, there's no, practically speaking, there is no other message that we have. What other message would you want to give to sinners? There's not another message to give them. There's nothing else. There's only one thing they need to hear. There's only one thing that will make eternal difference in their life, and it is the preaching of the gospel. So practically speaking, this is what you preach, this is what you speak, this is what you share, there's no other thing. Galatians 6, as Paul said, I, I will boast in nothing except in Christ. And he says something very powerful. He says, through which I was crucified to the world, and the world was crucified to me. Um, brought about a radical death. So boasting. Preaching and boasting. That's the, the two words I would put with 1 Corinthians 2 and Galatians 6. What else is there to preach? What else is there to boast in than the cross? What Jesus did. Okay? Now, that then automatically sets up everything that the third member of the Godhead loves to do. And that is 
take the glory of God bound up in the cross of Christ and apply it to the sinner's life. So let's talk about the transformation of life by the Spirit. When we finish this section, we'll take a little break, okay? So um, the transformation of life by the Spirit. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? If you were to ask Christians that today, most of them might say to uh, fill Christians, to gift Christians, to help them speak in tongues, to... Um, you know, what you might hear lots of crazy things. Uh, not crazy. Those are, many of those things are true. Um, but the role of the Holy Spirit primarily, and this is what we need to come back to, the role of the Holy Spirit is to apply the work of the cross. The role of the Holy Spirit is to apply the work of Christ on the cross. It's to make propitiation come. It's to make expiation come to the life of the one that God is saving. Here's another reason why you preach the cross. You know why? Because you know that the thing that the Holy Spirit loves to use when, he's, when he saves someone is the cross, the preaching of the gospel. So when that takes place, when the Holy Spirit applies the work of the, of the cross in the life of the one that's being saved, a massive salvation takes place. Now listen carefully. A massive salvation takes place. Not merely a fire insurance policy is given. Where you're, I'm just not going to hell anymore. That's great. I got fire insurance. I can live like hell on earth right now, but I'm not going to hell. See, that's not salvation. When the Spirit of God takes the cross and applies it to the life of, of the one who's being saved, to the believer, what is happening is... Yes, salvation from hell, salvation to heaven, but also sanctification. The Spirit uses expiation and propitiation to not only bring about salvation in the sense of you're not going to go to hell, but also bring about sanctification. The cross is at the center of both aspects of salvation. Now, let's um, talk about understanding regeneration and sanctification. You see where it says understanding regeneration? I would add the word and sanctification because I want you to, to understand the difference between these two. <coughs> this is where, where many times we can get goofed up. And so when we're talking about transformation of the Spirit, we're talking about how He regenerates. And we're talking, he applies the cross, and as He does that, there's regeneration and there's sanctification that takes place. So let's talk about understanding regeneration. Listen to this. This is the regeneration side. When, um, when, the new per when the person is born again into a new life, that's re regeneration. So when a person is born again into a new life before God, that is rooted in a moment. Regeneration is in a moment. Okay? This is very, very important. If you hear people talking about regeneration like it's a process, oh, Antenna goes up immediately, and you look at the passage they're in, and you try to help them. Regeneration is not a process. Boom. Instantaneous. A moment. So when the Spirit uses the cross, uses the substitute who paid the penalty and um, made you at one with God, applies it, regeneration, instantly. Now, sanctification is the new lifestyle 
that issues from the new life, right? Instantaneous or a process? Process. Sanctification is progressive. Regeneration is not. And here's what's really interesting. When you take those two and goof them up, where you make, there are some Christians and some movements that have made sanctification instantaneous. I know, I don't sin anymore. You ever heard that kind? You probably don't even know anybody who says that. It's not real popular, but there is a time and there are still pockets of evangelicals out there that are like, I don't sin anymore. They're not, they're not evangelicals. I think more often they just expect others not to sin anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's very true. I would like for your sanctification to be all done. <laughs> that's good. And then you have the other side uh, that's probably more common, that regeneration is a process. That you, you've got, there's things that have to continue to happen for you to truly be born again, to be accepted by God. And, and that's where you got to get these two things really straightened out. Regeneration, in a moment of time. Sanctification, progressive. The one common person involved in both, the Holy Spirit. He is the one who applies the cross of Christ to bring that about. Matt. When you say regeneration, are you meaning the rebirth? Yeah, rebirth. Yeah. Um, as far as like it's a process for regeneration, are you talking about the people that believe in baptism, things like that, that are required for regeneration or something. Yeah, I'd probably let that fall in that camp as well. That that yeah. The second experience perhaps of things so that the feeling of the spirit. Yeah. It's, it, I don't you know, I'd have it's to hear what they're all saying in that. But yeah, I mean any anybody who wants to take conversion and turn it into a process, regeneration turn into process, that's you're gonna be in real trouble. Yeah. So and and one thing that not to put words in your mouth, but one thing that I think we may want to distinguish is, is we may not understand where our regeneration was in our process, right. but the doctrine was speaking, what the Bible says is there a was a point, point somewhere in there, even point. if you can't say right. it was June 3rd, 2003, right. at 6 o'clock in the afternoon or, or whatever. Right, and that's a great point. Even though, and, and, the, and so even as you're not sure and you're maybe sharing your own testimony, you want to make sure that you're not making it sound like regeneration was a process because you just don't know when exactly it happened. You still have to apply what you know to be biblically true to your, even your own experience and let that define your experience, not let your experience define what regeneration is. And, and then just trust, you know, look, it's not, a, you're not, it's, not a, it's not a matter for getting into heaven that you understand when you were regenerated. Your, 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 the assurance of salvation comes through your sanctification process. That indeed I am being set apart more and more, and I am becoming more and more holy. There's proof that that one point regeneration happened in a moment. Um, yeah. <coughs> thought. I was going to say, isn't the danger with the, the people that are thinking about salvation as a process is that it becomes that from their viewpoint that their works are are, are part of that salvation process? Yeah. Some somehow, some way, absolutely. Yeah, you're. Let, let's talk about some Old Testament. Um, passages. Um, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, and Ezekiel 36 are your new covenant passages. The new covenant that God is going to make, he says, is going to be one that's going to bring about a, a pretty radical transformation at the heart level. In fact, let's go to the Ezekiel 36 one. 
Sorry if you were turning to the Jeremiah one. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. That's Ezekiel's favorite line to use over and over. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And here's how he's going to prove himself holy. I will take you from among the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It's just one statement after another what God will do. I will take you. I will sprinkle you. I will cleanse you. I will give you. I will put a new. I will remove. I will put. It's God speaking about what he is going to do. There's a beautiful picture in Ezekiel 37 about the, the bones. Verse 13. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your eyes and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. And what we know to be true is that in the New Testament, when Jesus gave himself up on the cross, he, and I like to use this word, inaugurated the new covenant. And he applied what was said here to those that he was saving. And then the mystery is revealed through Paul, and it's the church. These words in Ezekiel 36 and 37 and in Jeremiah 31 are written to whom? Israel. And I believe that these passages have to speak on their own. And this is where I would say the controlling line of authority for me is the Bible. And if these passages say that the new covenant will be applied to Israel then it has to be so. I need to construct my theology from that. Rather than spiritualize the text to say, well, actually, here Israel is the church. That's not what this says. The controlling line of authority for me is, is the Bible, and I want this text to say that. Um, that's a whole other subject that we probably don't want to get into at this point. But New Testament teaching, there's your Old Testament anticipation of regeneration like that coming in the New Covenant. New Testament is obviously John chapter 3. Jesus talking about uh, with Nicodemus that he must be born again. And he even brings up the Spirit. You don't know where the wind comes from, where it's going, but there it is. You can see the effect. And same as it is with the Spirit. God. Mike? Um, So how... Because like what I've seen being through one of that Old Testament... They have like Joshua and Caleb being filled with a different spirit from the people, and they were faithful. Um, so kind of, would it be accurate to say that the spirits work 
prior to the cross um, was more of a filling than an indwelling, or would it have come about the same way just the faith in yeah, Messiah? Yeah, that's a great question. That, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, how about I give you a, a short, probably unsatisfactory answer for now? Because there's, there's, a, there's a huge theological debate on this. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you, um, I'll give you extremes to avoid. You probably, I don't think we want to say, because I don't think the texts are indicating that the Holy Spirit was not needed in the Old Testament for salvation. Um, sinners being what they are and sin being what it is and deadness to God being what it is still required the third member of the Godhead to regenerate. Um, I think you see Moses aware of that by using language like circumcise your heart. Now, does he use the word regenerate like Paul does? No. But um, it's there. There's a need. There's an understanding. I mean, David in his sin overwhelming him created me a new heart. I need, I need, this, I need like a new start. There's this crying out for it. And I think, I think the Old Testament, and we talked about this when we went through, I forget what it was for. It was either um, the heart or the home talking on this, but um, the, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, cried out for, you, you guys need a new heart. <laughs> but the Old Covenant didn't provide the regeneration like uh, and, until the New Covenant came. But that doesn't mean that they weren't regenerated. It, didn't, it just pointed to the blood of the Son that the Spirit would use to apply. So I don't think we want to say there was no role of the Holy Spirit in salvation in the Old Testament. Um, at the same time, you, that doesn't mean you conclude on the other side that um, the Holy Spirit indwelt believers exactly the same in the Old Testament as he does the New Testament. Because the texts don't seem to say that either. So where I'm at in terms of my understanding of this at this point is I, I pretty much try to avoid the two extremes and then I look at each passage individually. That um, I, I don't think the Bible allows us to say that you know, people were saved apart from the Spirit in the Old Testament, or that people weren't saved at all in the Old Testament until the Spirit came. We don't want to say anything like that. We also don't want to say, well, everything that the New Testament says is true, and I'll just push that back into the Old Testament, too. I, I don't think that's a wise thing to do, either. So the, the, the Spirit had to be involved in causing a, a new heart, a, a new birth, somehow. But the Old Testament doesn't seem to talk about it in the same way that the New Testament does. And at that point, I, I, I pretty much at least probably until I do some more study, that's pretty much where I feel like I can leave it. I'm satisfied with that at this point. I want to study more, but that's the way I see it. You can ask the smarter one, who is Smedley, and he'll be able to probably give you some even more good things. Um, in the New Testament teaching, you have John 3 there. Titus 3 is an excellent passage to talk about the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Those are, I think, regeneration-like passages. The ones that follow from there, Romans 8. Let's go to that and just look at a couple of these. Romans 8, and then we'll take a break, guys. Romans 8, verse 10. I tell you, when you get to Romans 8, um, just circle the word spirit as you read it, and, and it'll jump out on your page. 
So you'll, you'll be able to see very quickly what the emphasis of chapter 8 is on. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, well, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12, transition. So then, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I think in verses 10 and 11, he's talking about the Spirit in regards to regeneration. You'll be made alive. Verses 12 and 13, you must live now by that Spirit. Sanctification. Going on. Galatians 3 is the same thing. Let's go there. Take a look at that. Are you so foolish, Galatians? Uh, verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Uh, hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you just have the Spirit involved in getting the new life started, but now it's all up to you in your own works that you do? Verse 5, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and who works miracles among you, did he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's all about faith. You begin by the Spirit, you end by the Spirit. Go to chapter 5, verse 16. I didn't write this one down, but write down chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You see, this is more sanctification issues. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so yet you may not do the things that you please. And 1 Peter 1.2 says, You were chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, unto obedience to Jesus and sprinkling in His blood. That the Spirit is doing the sanctifying work. Practically speaking, what do you do with this? Um, I think you make the Holy Spirit a new subject of study in the Word of God. I think the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Godhead for us. Because we're kind of, we don't really know what to do with Him, especially as we interact with other Christians out there, we see the kind of the weird ideas that come up about the Holy Spirit, and so there kind of tends to be, a, if anything, a, a moving away from the Spirit in, in a way that we shouldn't. We, we want to move maybe away from their position and their view of the Spirit, but we don't want to move away from what the Spirit, who the Spirit is at all, completely. So come back to these things, especially come back to the Gospel and the way the Holy Spirit applies the Gospel and the effects the Spirit brings when He applies the Gospel, which is sanctification. Okay? All right, we'll take a little bit of a break and uh, come back in a few minutes. Okay, guys? All right. Mike, you have a question? Yeah. We're um, moving on to the second part. <laughs> We talked about um, a biblical vision of God, and in the way that the statement works, if you look on the front page of your um, handout that I gave to you, a biblical vision of God leads to a gospel purpose in Christ, right? Now we're ready to talk about a gospel purpose, and, and the words that we have chosen are very important. Biblical vision 
thinking about the word vision again, something we just want to set our sights on and that we want to be what becomes our sight. We're not really doing a whole lot of anything. We're talking about propositions in that first part. Things that we want to set our eyes on, things through which, propositions through which we want to look at the world. We want to look at the world and think about the glory of God. We want to look at the world and we want to think about the cross of Christ. We want to look at the world and we want to look at broken sinners and we want to think of transformation of life by the Spirit. Okay? Um, now we're going to talk about not a biblical purpose. We, we want to have a, a biblical purpose, but specifically, what have we been given? We've been given a gospel purpose. Okay? So we're, we're, taking, we're going from the Bible, and we're going down to the gospel in the Bible, and the gospel is our purpose. And that's not to say that we're not letting all of the Bible control what our purpose is, but we've been given very specifically a gospel purpose. And it's not just a, a biblical vision of God in general, the Godhead, but we're also it's a gospel purpose that's rooted in Christ, his great commission. Um, so I hope you see the intentionality with those words. What do we mean? Uh, two things, just this first. <clears throat> we're recognizing the place in redemptive history in which we live. We have the gospel purpose, which is in Christ. We have the gospel purchase, uh, purchase purpose, which belongs to Christ. Okay? Um, listen, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Uh, that's, is that Romans 4? Galatians 3, thank you. I, I, I'm gonna, I love that verse. If I could only find Galatians, here it is. Ah, verse 8. Galatians 3, thanks, Tom. What a, what a sermon. <laughs> Galatians 3.8. It's in the New Testament. Thanks. <laughs> That's great. Uh, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Um, but you know what? We're not living under, in one sense, in one sense, the gospel purpose of Abraham. And in our sense, we are. But God... Abraham's purpose under God from Genesis 12 forward is not where we're, we don't live in that day. There are fruits and benefits of that, and, and yes, the gospel, which is believe in God and, and have righteousness accredited to you, um, yes, we live under that. But, but we recognize that where we fall in, in the redemptive historical line, and that's in Christ when he has come, and we are under his great commission, not Abraham's per se, uh, just as an example, or under Israel's per se but we're under the church's unique purpose in the gospel, which is rooted in Christ. There are similarities between the Old Testament and New Testament, obviously because of God and what he is doing and accomplishing, but what we're trying not to do is flatten out the whole Bible and the Old Testament and New Testament to say that they all say the exact same thing and there's no changes ever, but we live under the gospel purpose that's in Christ. Secondly, we're trying to say, as Jesus proclaimed the gospel, he had three primary activities, not propositions, but activities, commands, uh, things that we need to be thinking about. And, and they all overlap and they complement one another. And in Acts, um, the book of Acts and the writing of the apostles carries that forward, obviously, too. The three things are drawing in, building up, and sending out. These are three activities that um, overlap. You can't tell really where one ends and the next begins, um, but they're all there. Let's talk about drawing in first. <coughs> Um, you got a blank to fill in there. Drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. It's God's work. And you can go to John chapter 6 to see this. 
Let's turn back there. John 6, verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, So we're talking about a drawing in that is God's sovereign and saving work. We're talking about salvation when we talk about drawing in. We want to see sinners be saved and drawn in to God, uh, into Christ by God. Okay, we want to see that. We're not talking about drawing in merely as if we want to see people be drawn into a program or a service. Um, If those programs and those services um, present the gospel well and uh, are a a tool towards that, that's great. Um, Look, we want to see unbelievers at church come. Um, That's not not the issue. but we're talking about we're not satisfied until we have seen them be drawn into Christ savingly so, right? So that's what we're really after. We're not talking about people being drawn into evangelistic meetings per se because uh, we're not satisfied with that kind of drawing in until the drawing in results into salvation and only God can do that. We're also talking about in drawing in, um, we're talking about Jesus crucified, that he is God's unique object of attraction. Okay, there's your second blank. Unique object of attraction. And and look what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus crucified. And verse 33. Jesus says, And I if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, John tells us. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. That's the cross, being lifted up on a cross above the earth to die. So what draws people to himself in a saving way is him being lifted up in crucifixion. Okay, it's, it's, it's not just God drawing in in any old kind of general saving way as if he has other ways that he saves sinners apart from Christ crucified. No, there's only one way he draws sinners to himself, and that is through Messiah on a cross. Okay? So there is a unique object of attraction. You won't find it in all any of the other religious books. You only find it in our religious book. It is Messiah crucified. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.18 talks about that. Chapter 2 also. Um, that... Christ crucified is a stumbling block, but that's the point. That's the drawing point. Okay? So practically speaking, um, here's what I I mentioned this earlier. I think the the best tool for drawing in is to, or the best way to prepare for drawing in, whether you're meeting with a friend or hoping somebody comes to church or come into small group or whatever, is I think you want to use what the Holy Spirit loves to use to convert sinners and to draw sinners. If, if we would just ask ourselves that question, it clarifies so many things. It clarifies what your role is. What does the Spirit of God love to use to draw someone to Christ? The cross. <laughs> so what do you do with them? Lift it up. Lift up the cross of Christ. Lift it up. Make it clear. Listen, if... 
when, and it's really interesting to watch, when a church begins to lift other stuff up to try to draw the lost community, come in and listen to this. Great music. You know, come into this. Great family community life. Look, those things are important. Have good music. Don't do bad music. Do good music. Do, do, have community. But if you lift those things up, those things don't save. Those things don't draw people to Christ. Those people might make people curious. Or those things might make people curious, interested. But you know what? You mess up the community. And what are those people going to do if that's what they came for? They're gone. They won't stay. And, and that's what makes it confusing. If, if, if um, when, when a Christian says, I've got this unbelieving friend, and what I'm really trying to do is I'm really trying to build a bridge with him. And so I'm trying to take interest in the things that he's interested in. And he really likes this kind of music, so I'm listening to this kind of music. And he, he likes these kind of movies, so I'm going to those kind of movies with him. And he likes to hang out with that kind of place, and so I'm going to that place with him because that's what Christians need to do. And, and um, well, listen, when he rejects you, what's he rejecting? He's rejecting you, and you don't even know what he's, re you don't even know if he's rejecting the cross if you didn't give him the cross. And so the simple thing is, is before you do that with somebody, is just say, what would the Holy Spirit love to use in the life of my friend? And look, yeah, you might want to take interest in some of the things he's doing, absolutely. But give to him the gospel, give to him the cross, so that when he rejects, or protests, or resists, or accepts, it's clear to you what he's accepting. What if all of a sudden he loves you and he wants to start coming to church with you? And, and you've never presented the gospel to him. But, oh man, you've gone to every place he loves to go and you've listened to every kind of music he loves and you've gone to every movie he loves. What if he accepts you and now he comes to church? What is he accepting? You don't even know. At best, it's you, your friendship, and that's a great thing. But that's not what God uses to draw people to himself. Make it clear. Put the gospel out clearly in front. And don't be a jerk and say, look, I don't care about what you like. I don't care about what the people you like to go see. And I don't like that. But you need Jesus and he died on the cross. I'm not saying that either, right? You understand? <laughs> but make it clear. What, just set out in front. What does the Spirit of God love to use when he draws a sinner to himself? Um, and it's the unique object of attraction is Jesus crucified for drawing in. All right, building up. Building up. Once somebody has been drawn in to Christ, what does the Holy Spirit love to do next? He loves to build up the Christian. Now, um, understanding the place of my edification with the church's edification. The word edification is the word building up, right? Constructing. Um, and we just went through this last week, didn't we? The last couple weeks, the, the, the role of the individual and the whole. Um, so I'll let you spend some time for the sake of time, saving time here. I'll let you, you know, refresh your memory with what we talked about in Ephesians 4, and that is um, Paul put a very strong emphasis on that you must grow up into Christ. You and you and you and you, and we all must grow up into Christ. But as we do that, it was God's intent that in working together, we would cause the growth of the body. So the kind of building up that we're interested in is not merely personal discipleship. 
Okay? Got to do that. Men sitting with men, man sitting with man, going through the Bible, discipling one another into Christ must happen. But if that happens and we're not concerned about the building up of the body, then we have a very diminished view of building up. Okay? That doesn't match Ephesians 4, at least, and other passages. So, practically speaking for you, um, in regards to this, I would just ask you to think about what's your primary focus? What has your focus been on? Has it been on personal edification mostly to the exclusion of the body being built up? Is it easier for you to view your own self getting built up and having a personal life of, of growth? And then, yeah, I attend church too. That's important. Or do you see your life as really connected to others in the body that there's like, it's amazing what Paul said, those points of connection between have support. And that those connections of support have to operate according to a standard by the measure of, of the equipping that was given to them. Um, you have to have your life connected with others in the body. And then the body grows. Sending out. Now let's talk about the connection between drawing in, building up, and sending out. We don't want to be a church that fervently is busy drawing in, come, come hear this, but then not be a church who's given thought to what do we do with them once they come. There were times um, when we, we, I remember we first got over here, and that was almost uh, four years ago, and we had we had some people who were really concerned that we weren't advertising as a church. Because all we had to do is if we advertised and then sent out a, spent a little bit of money on mailing, people would come. And I remember the elders, we, we'd be talking, and we're like, I'm not sure we would know what to do with them when they came. I'm not sure we're equipped to handle 50 more people if they came today. And that's not to say we don't want to grow as a church. I mean, we want to grow, but we need to be equipped to be able to care for it. It's just not about getting people to show up. they got to grow in Christ. And as elders, we feel the weight as, you know, four guys back then, we can't even shepherd the 130 people who are here, 150 people who are here very well. We need to have more men who are equipped to do this. And, and God has grown the church the way that he wants to grow the church, and we don't do a whole lot of advertising in fact, right now, nobody even knows as they drive by on the street that Grace Bible Church exists here. The only way they know on this street when they drive by is for eight hours on Sunday, between 12 and seven hours, between 12 and seven, I think. That sign out there says Grace Bible Church, 5 p.m. Um, like, that's not a bragging point, but anyway, it's just we need to be equipped to be able to handle people when they come because we're thinking about more than just getting them to come and take a seat and give. Because what good is it that they come if they don't give, right? <laughs> That's not me. I'm thinking. Should we write that down? No. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's all on the table. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, that's the way it, 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 it's thought of out there. Um, but then we also don't want to be a church that's given thought to good. We want obviously people to be drawn into Christ and be saved. We want to build them up, but we also then don't want to be a church that hasn't given any thought to beyond that. And the point is, is that you have to get to the sending out part. Uh, now, talking about this way talks about them all like they're very rigidly separated. Okay, that drawing in only happens 
in this space right here. And then once you pass that line, then you've gone over into building up territory. And then building up territory only goes from here to there. And then once you've crossed this line, you've moved over into send out. And when you're in send out, you're not in being built up anymore because you graduate from that and you're going on. And we're not talking about it. There's so much overlap. And one of the best ways that Jesus built up his disciples was by sending them out. He sent them out with the gospel. That's what you are to do every day. You are sent out with the gospel. It's a great way that God builds you up in Christ, in the gospel. Um, God is a sending God. I have some passages down there for you to look at and think, think of. Exodus 3, um, he says to Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Here's another word you need to be looking for when you read through your Bibles. It's the word send. And yeah, you're going to see all kinds of crazy things where it says, and, and the lady sent his son to go do this. Yeah, but that's probably not as crucial of a send word, but you're looking for, watch God sending. Okay, watch for it. Isaiah 6. Isaiah has the vision of holy, holy, holy God, and he overhears the Godhead talking. Who shall we send? He overhears that this set-apart God, who's unlike any other God, is concerned about, we need to send somebody. And Isaiah, based on what he has seen, he is so ready. He's like, oh, send me. I'll go. God is ascending God. He wants to send his prophets. Jeremiah 1, I'm sending you. Ezekiel chapter 2, I'm sending you. Nobody's going to listen to you, but I'm sending you. That'd be tough. John chapter 1, John the Baptist was sent. Jesus Christ was sent by his sending father. Read the gospel of John 50 times. Jesus refers to himself as the one whom he sent. He is the sent one. The Holy Spirit was sent. Let's look at these for a second. John 14. Watch this. So the Father is ascending Father. The Son is the sent Son. And the Holy Spirit was sent too. John 14, verse 26. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, now watch this, send in my name, so the Father is really close in sending the Spirit in the name of the Son. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Go to John chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, Jesus still talking, same night, same discourse, whom I will send to you from the Father. And he switched it this time. The Father is sending him in my name, but I'm sending him from the Father. So who's sending the Spirit? Is it the Father or the Son? And the answer to that question is yes. yes. Both of them are. Catholics and the Orthodox are arguing about this for like Have they really? Well, then let's move on. Oh, yeah. John 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So you have a sending father who sent the son, who is sending the spirit, and when he saves us and makes us like him, if you think that there is no sent status for you, you don't understand your Bible. How could a sending father who sent a son, who sent a spirit, when he transforms you to make you look like his son, not make you into a sent one? You are. You're a sent one. We're sent ones. We're sent ones. John chapter 4, Jesus says, I'm sending you into other men's work. 
John chapter 17. Look at that. Just turn the chapter to the right. As you sent me, Father, into the world, this is Jesus' prayer, I also have sent them into the world. John chapter 20, verse 21, when he shows up um, after being resurrected, he says in John 20, verse 21, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Send the laborers out into the harvest. And that's what he said pray for, right? Pray that the Father would send laborers. And then who are the first ones to go? The guys who are praying that. Dear Lord, please send men into the harvest. That's a great idea. And Jesus says, okay, you said amen. Go. What? <laughs> what? Careful what you pray for. <laughs> Practically speaking, just, just write this down. I'm going to give you several verses to look at. Another way to talk about being sent is by using the word witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1.22. Acts 2.32. Acts 3.15. Acts 5.32. Acts 10.39. And verse 41. Acts 13, verse 31. That's Peter, for the most part, being the one over and over saying, we're witnesses. We're witnesses of these things. We're witnesses of these things. We, we witness this. Paul was a witness. Acts 22, verse 15. Acts 26, verse 16. And he even referred to Stephen as his witness. And even when your witness Stephen was being stoned to death, I was in hearty agreement. All right, so what does practical speaking, practically speaking, what does this being sent look like? And I know I'm going quick, guys, but I want to make sure that we get at least a little bit of time in small group. Four things, okay? The first is this. Number one, you are sent into your household with the gospel. Do not play leapfrog over that sending. You are sent into your household with the gospel, okay? And then God has this genius sending plan. It's that we would all be together one day out of the week for a little bit of time. And then six other days of the week, he what? Boom. He sends us all out. You are sent, secondly, into the places that God has already positioned you. Your neighborhood, your work, your school, wherever you are, whatever it is you do. Don't play leapfrog over that. Don't look at that and say, you know, that's, that's, an, that's an inferior sending. I really want to go to the mission field, or I really want to go into ministry someday. You are. You are. You're sent into your home. You're sent into the place you already lived. And it's a brilliant strategy for a church of 220 plus people to be scattered over 220 different places in this valley with the gospel as witnesses. That's a brilliant strategy. And you're going to be there every day of the week, bumping into the same people over and over and over. Live as a sent one. Live as a witness. Thirdly, you're sent into the ministries of people in this church and outside that you might take on as a special ministry, like a, a special discipling of somebody. You're sent into ministries in this church with the gospel. Don't think that doesn't matter. Don't think that that's not a big deal about being sent. It's a huge deal about being sent. So you're sent into the household with the gospel. You're sent into the places that you've already lived and already positioned by, that you've been positioned by God in. That you're sent into ministries of people in your church. I tell you what, you be faithful as a sent one in those places. And number four will become clear. 
What's number four? You might be sent more formally by your church. You might be sent more formally by your church. You might not. You might just be called by God to be just like the rest of us, sent in this informal way that we live. But why would you think that you could be sent formally by the church if you're not viewing yourself as sent into your household? And you're not being faithful as a sent one in the places where you live. And you're not being faithful to be sent one in the ministries of the church. Be sent in those three areas and it will be very clear in time. If there's a formal sending from your church. Either to plant churches locally or plant churches across the world. Last thing. I want you to see the centrality of the gospel in all three of these things. What good is drawing in if you don't have the cross? And by that I mean the gospel. And what good is being built up if we're not building one another up with the gospel? And what good is, is sending somebody out if, if you're not sending out with the gospel? So it's what kind of a purpose? Gospel purpose. Okay? Gospel purpose. All right, so that is a ton for you to think about um, and to be exposed to in regards to a biblical vision of God that leads to our gospel purpose in Christ. I hope when you walk in tomorrow, Lord willing, if you're going to be there, you'll look up at those two big banners and you'll look at them and you'll think, that is a very large task and great privilege for us to be involved in. Um, but that's what we've got. Any questions or comments, guys? Before we get into small groups for a little bit of time, why don't we just go ahead and do like we've been doing, uh, where we've been meeting. Um, but let's, nobody's staying, are, is anybody staying in this room? Does the group do that? Brian or Eric, have you done that? You have time? Okay. Uh, let's just go to our regular places that we meet. Afterwards, there's, there's no rush to get out of here like we have had other times, but I do have need for a little bit of a setup in here that needs to take place after nine when we're done. If any of you want to help with that, um, I have a, a wonderful sketch diagram right here that shows exactly what's supposed to happen. Now I'm going to leave it here. If you get started on that first, that's great. It basically means I think this table needs to be put away um, and all of the chairs, so there's going to be four round tables with a long rectangular in the middle. We can just take that rectangular one over there and put it in the middle. Um, but the chairs that go around these tables, if we could stack the metal ones and bring out as many of the softer ones that have the armrests on them, that'd be great. I think there's a, a funeral today, and, and um, they were wanting to have a little bit more comfortable chairs than the metal chair. And that would be a great way that we can help them, okay? Also, take all of the food home with you, whatever's up there. Uh, that's the, by the command of Jerry, because uh, Jerry will not be able to take it. So if it's sitting there and nobody's eating it, you can put it in your pocket and go home. Okay? All right. We'll let you guys all close in prayer in your uh, small groups together. Okay, guys? Thanks.